Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Thanks for listening. If you're not already a subscriber, please sign up at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Please leave us a nice review. This week, on the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we're going to take stock of the conflict. America's role as the leading supporter and supplier of Ukraine's struggle, and the larger questions the war raises for American global strategy and national security, with one of our leading historians and foreign policy commentators, Robert Kagan. President Biden's unannounced visit to Kyiv this week was an emphatic public statement of America's commitment to continued support of Ukraine. The spectacle of a U.S. president visiting a country at war is intended to signal to friends and foes alike that the U.S. is in this, as Biden now repeatedly says, for as long as it takes. And in a meeting in Poland with NATO allies and others, Biden framed U.S. support for Ukraine more directly than before as part of a vital struggle between the forces of democracy and freedom and those of violent autocracy. Is this rhetorical escalation, along with promises of more aid on top of the $100 billion the US has already committed, wise? The war itself looks increasingly to be locked in a stalemate, despite big Ukrainian gains in recent months. But Russia's mobilizing more forces, and this week we learned that China may be about to start supplying Moscow with weapons. So what's at stake for the US now? Does the continuing focus on this war in Eastern Europe distractors from the much larger strategic challenge of China, as some argue? Or, with Russia and China now seemingly locked in a tightening embrace, is the war in Ukraine in fact a proxy battle in a burgeoning wider conflict? Well, as I say, I'm delighted to talk about all this with Robert Kagan, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, an eminent historian of US foreign policy and grand strategy, and a forceful proponent of an interventionist American foreign policy at a time when some Americans, especially on the right, are skeptical about U.S. entanglements. He's been described generally as a neoconservative thinker, although he doesn't particularly like that term, and he served as an advisor to Republican presidents. But he left the Republican Party when Donald Trump won the presidential nomination. He has written multiple books, including The World America Made and The Jungle Grows Back. And his most recent publication is the second in a trilogy of books on U.S. foreign policy. It's called The Ghost at the Feast. America and the Collapse of World Order, 1900 to 1941. Bob Kagan joins me now. Bob, thanks very much indeed for joining Free Expression. Great to be here. Thank you, Jerry. President Biden has been in Ukraine this week, as well as obviously in Poland, giving important speeches. Start, you've been a pretty strong supporter of President Biden's approach to Ukraine so far and what the US has been doing. President again repeated this week this line, and he did it right there, side by side with Vladimir Zelensky, and said, once again, the United States will be with Ukraine for, quote, as long as it takes. Is that open-ended commitment to supporting Ukraine in that very public and very high-profile way there in, in Ukraine itself, is that wise as a U.S. posture as this war continues? Well, I mean, right now, I don't know what choice there is. The war is on. If we didn't want to get involved in Ukraine, that decision should have been made a year ago, not now. Putin is obviously in it for the long haul. If we say that we're not in it for the long haul, then he's going to win. So I don't know what choice we have but to say that. And I know people are frustrated 
that they don't have what the end game is. But of course, in situations like this, the the end game is not entirely up to us, right? A lot has to do with what's going to happen in Russia, what's going to happen with the Russian military, and what Putin ultimately decides is in their best interest. But just because we would like to have a nice clean endpoint at the end of this, I just don't think that's one of the options right now. Ukraine has made very clear what its objectives are. And again, I think those of us who believe in international law and believe in the maintenance of a stable international system completely sympathize with the Ukraine position, which is Russia must withdraw from all of Ukraine, including Crimea, back to the pre-2014 borders that have been observed for Ukraine for the previous 20 years before that, since the end, longer than that, since the end of the Soviet Union. And given that we are fully supportive of Ukraine, that presumably is our objective too, right? We will continue to help Ukraine prosecute this war until, if we can imagine that, Russia is completely withdrawn from Ukrainian territory. Again, the question is, as opposed to what? Wherever any negotiation would draw the line now, that line will just be a temporary sort of ceasefire line until Russia and Putin reconstitute their capabilities and come back again. I think we really have enough evidence to suggest that he's not going to be satisfied with whatever corner of Ukraine he has. He's shown his determination. So the goal needs to be to establish a situation that is stable and it doesn't have us back in a conflict two years later. So therefore, the goal is to find a defensible position for Ukraine that doesn't just open it up to the next attack. Where exactly that line has to be, uh, what exactly that entails, we can see that the objective has to be to make it impossible for Russia to repeat this episode. Otherwise, we could be doing this for decades. You know, Russia spent decades conquering various parts of its empire in the past. So that's what we need to do. We need to harden Ukraine so that it can't be attacked again. To help Ukraine achieve that objective, the US should actually be doing more. The Biden's response so far, again, I mean, you've been supportive of it. A lot of people have to. And it's been, I think, perhaps to some people, quite an impressive and unexpected strength of support for Ukraine. But it does seem that the Biden administration is engaged in this kind of defensive, almost defensive, responsive escalation that initially we ruled out certain categories of weapons, and then we did that. Then we ruled out tanks. We've ruled out fighter jets flowing. Now maybe in certain countries in NATO, that's being reconsidered. You know, if we're really serious about helping Ukraine attain these objectives and win this war, shouldn't we be a little bit more proactive in terms of supporting them? Yes. And we should have been all along. And I think there are a couple of reasons why we weren't. Some of them were, I think, not understanding what you just said, which is that if we're in, we're in. And so we ought to do everything we can to win. But I think, first of all, in the early part of the war, it wasn't clear whether Ukraine would even survive. And then it wasn't clear whether there was going to be a stalemate. Uh, I think a lot of people, including myself, have been surprised and somewhat in awe of the Ukrainians' will to fight. You know, that has also changed requirements. But the other point, which you're alluding to, is that there's been a, you know, a little bit of self-deterrence here. I think the administration thinks it's managing the escalation and has been worried about excessively provoking Putin. I think that that has been a mistake just because Putin is all in. And I think that he's doing what he can do. It doesn't look to me like he's holding back much. So I think that we have been engaged in a little bit of self-deterrence, but it's been getting better. On the whole, the response of both the United States and the allies has been pretty impressive given what might have been. Are there any circumstances, Bob, in which you think the United States would be right to actually get directly militarily involved in the conflict with direct U.S. military engagement? It's impossible to foresee such situations, and I'm not going to speculate right now. I think the important thing is that, fortunately, at the moment, the Ukrainians are proving themselves to be such an effective force, especially when armed effectively by the United States and the allies, that we won't reach that point. 
But it's like, it's not as if we haven't had a situation in the past where we were bound and determined only to supply weapons to somebody, but somehow wound up because of the actions of the adversary getting more directly involved. I believe, and I think this is an important fact that we should keep in mind, I think we can be pretty sure of it. Putin is losing to Ukraine right now. I don't think he's eager to fight NATO and the United States. So I think he's going to do everything he can not to provoke us into involvement, because that really would be the end for his military. There's been, there's been quite a lot of reports in the last few weeks, and some Republicans, particularly Senator Hawley, was talking about this this week, about concerns about the strains that the U.S. support. It's a little bit more than $100 billion has been committed in total support so far in the first year. And again, with this open-ended commitment, presumably will get larger. The strains that that's placing on U.S. military resources, on munitions, on capability to keep supplying this extraordinarily kinetic war, as well as meeting our own obligations and potential threats around the world. Do you think that's, you know, they get, other people say, oh, you know, it's not that much in the grand scheme of the whole U.S. budget. Are we starting to deplete some of our own military capability by this high level of support? There's no question that we have, over the last three decades, allowed our industrial plant to sort of wither away so that we now are facing production pressures. Everybody knows that producing enough ammunition for this conflict is straining capabilities. And as Senator Hawley points out, if we also then had a contingency in Asia, then that would really force us into really having to speed up production. But that's the answer. The answer, as the Wall Street Journal editorial page has said, has been to deal with the war that we're dealing with and prepare for the next one by increasing defense spending and increasing production. I'm a little bit surprised that the Pentagon hasn't invoked the Defense Production Act, which allows it to spur American industry in various ways to produce more. I don't know what we're waiting for. This is the time to do that. The one thing I do want to say about Senator Hawley's latest proposal is he proposes, in order to deal with this problem, completely cutting off Ukraine from all support and pulling all U.S. forces out of Europe. I'm really not sure why that is could possibly be the right answer here. He wants to shift focus to Asia, but I can only imagine what our Asian allies would think watching us abandon our European allies in the middle of a conflict. So I think that abandoning the crisis in Europe is not the answer. The answer is gearing America up. We spend less than 4% of GDP on defense now. Throughout the Cold War, we routinely spent in the double digits. In the Reagan years, at the end, we were spending close to 7 and 8%. We are underfunded. We used to have a policy of being able to fight in two wars in two different theaters, meaning Europe and Asia. We've long since let that capability lapse, and it's time for us to get serious again about the challenges that are out there in the world. We'll take a break there, but when we come back, I'll have more with Bob Kagan, and we'll be talking about America's history as the dominant global power over the last hundred years. Stay with us. Rapid expansion. We're ready. Worker shortage. We're good. Anything can change the world of work. A celebrity buys the company. Depends on who it is, but relax, we've got ADP. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. Welcome back. I'm talking with scholar Bob Kagan, an author of a new book on U.S. foreign policy in the first part of the 20th century. We're looking at the history of U.S. foreign policy, but also how it applies to the world as it is today. 
There have been reports this week that China is now considering supplying weapons to Russia, something it hasn't done in the first year, and the Biden administration is obviously pushing back hard on that. I guess, take up the point of the Hawley's point or some of the other critics of some of what the US is doing in Ukraine, is that this seems to be the risk here, right? That what China's doing is actually, it's quite happy to see the United States distracted, significant amounts of US resources going on this while it pursues its own objectives in Asia. Again, your answer is we should be beefing up defense capabilities so we can meet them both. But those are on a long time frame, aren't they? We're not going to really be able to beef up our military manufacturing capability overnight. Meanwhile, China could be looking to take advantage of the situation that they have now by attacking Taiwan, or at least by making perhaps significant moves towards increasing its power in East Asia. Right. And I think we do need to be concerned about that. I just think the answer is not abandoning Europe in order to deal with Asia. I don't think that would even help vis-a-vis the Chinese. The answer is, as you say, to build up our capabilities. Now, on the other hand, I would say It's not clear that the Chinese have made a final decision. They may well go ahead and start arming the Russians. But it's interesting to watch the pushback they're getting, not only from the United States, but also from Europe. The European Union foreign minister, of all people, was warning China against doing that. And China does have to consider, sure, they're expecting bad relations with the United States, but it's not really in their interest to get shot out of Europe as well. And I think they have to weigh this very carefully right now. And I think they are weighing it carefully. I'm not an expert on this, and I don't think any of us are capable of making a prediction. I don't think Xi Jinping is ready to make a move on Taiwan right now. And so the best circumstance would be for us to help the Ukrainians make real progress in this conflict while we build up our capabilities to deal with China. To me, that seems to be the most sensible strategy. And I really can't understand why anybody would recommend differently if they were thinking about the long-term interests of the United States. You've written a lot and critically of Europeans. You just talked there about the European foreign minister and perhaps displaying a new kind of robustness on the part of the Europeans. And a lot of people have written in the last year, one of the surprising things has been the extent of NATO solidarity and some of these quite significant pronouncements from Europeans, Germany talking about the need to bolster its military spending, Sweden and Finland applying to join, successfully applying, it seems, to join NATO. How much of this is real, do you think? Does what's happened in the last year suggest to you that the Europeans are finally getting out of their kind of dream world of post-historical world of no conflict and peace with each other, and they're finally getting the message? Or do you think it's primarily rhetorical at this point? No, I don't think it's rhetorical. I think the Europeans are genuinely worried. And I mean, that's the difference between now and when I wrote, you know, Europeans are from Venus and Americans are from Mars 20 years ago. 20 years ago, the Europeans felt that there was no threat in the world. In fact, they thought the biggest threat was the United States being, you know, too much of a bully around the world. But today, obviously, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it's all very real again. I asked my British friends, I'm sure you'd do the same. I said, why is Britain so strong on this subject? And I noticed that Boris Johnson is sort of lobbying on behalf of Ukraine in the US right now. And the answer I get is that Britons do remember World War II. And I'm sure that other Europeans, certainly the Poles remember. So I think that the mere fact that the world has now suddenly and quite strikingly appeared to be a very dangerous place indeed, and particularly in Europe, the Europeans have responded in this way. There's much more they need to do. But I think this has been a real dose of realism for Europeans who had hoped that they had entered the kind of post-historical 
paradise of peace and well-being. You know, in the case of Britain, I think part of it is the desire to demonstrate a kind of an international identity post-Brexit and sort of, you know, address the critics who say that Britain's kind of just one small island of no significance whatsoever. But I'm skeptical a little bit because there's absolutely no question I wrote this week that, you know, without the US leading this effort to arm Ukraine and support Ukraine, I don't think there would have been even a, almost you know, been a, the usual sort of squeaks of diplomatic protest from Europeans, but Putin would have been in Kiev and Russians would have been celebrating him a year later, you know, with the, some new pipeline agreement. So, I mean, again, I, I take the point that this has been a wake-up call, but there's still just in terms of the balance of responsibility, both sort of political, strategic, military responsibility, it's still massively an American, NATO is still essentially an American, so less of a coalition and more of a kind of American leadership with some countries following in its wake, isn't it? And that still hasn't really been addressed. That's a little bit strong, Jerry, but I think, but yes, that's the way we set it up. We set up an alliance that depended on the United States to be at the center of it. After World War II, the United States took a role in Europe to make sure that Europe could remain secure because Europe had demonstrated, I would say, at least three times over the previous century, that Europe was incapable of keeping its own peace itself. Uh, that has, you know, we can get into the problem of Germany, the fact that Germany is too big for Europe, etc. Whatever the reasons are, Europe had failed to keep the peace itself twice in the 20th century, and the United States stepped in and has actually quite successfully kept the peace in Europe ever since. And so, of course, they're dependent on the United States leadership in this situation. That is the world that we've created. That is the world that we've inherited. And it's working pretty well, I would say. So you can't expect the Europeans, and I don't expect them to, stand up on their own. And we can walk away, as Josh Hawley is suggesting, and they can handle everything themselves. It's just not the nature of the European situation and hasn't been for centuries, really. One final question on Ukraine and Europe, and then I want to talk about broader strategic challenges, and I particularly want to get onto your book and, and the history of this. The question on Ukraine and Europe is, what's the best strategic outcome here for the United States Ukraine? I mean, I, I guess, you know, the obvious question is somehow Russia is completely defeated. It does withdraw from all of Ukraine, although I think we then have question marks about what kind of a Russia is left after that, after that kind of a humiliation, you know, whether Putin survives, what happens internally within Russia. But, you know, if you could construct a kind of a dream scenario over the next year or two about how this war and its aftermath unfolds, what would it look like? Well, I'm a little reluctant to do that, Jerry, because if I do a dream scenario and it doesn't come out, then people are going to say, oh, you thought everything was going to be wonderful and it wasn't. I'm sort of getting tired of that game. Well, give us what you think is the most plausible outcome. You support this policy. What's the most plausible outcome of it? Right now, it seems to me what we're seeing in the Russian military is unprecedented. We now have major open political conflict between different branches of the Russian military, arguing not just privately over resources, but publicly. We have Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, yelling and screaming about not getting ammunition and showing dead bodies to the Russian public, which can hardly be good for morale. And so I think what that evidence is, is, is a breakdown in the system. No, no army that's engaged in that kind of public squabbling is in good shape. So I would not rule out the possibility because it has happened in the past, it happened in World War I, that the Russian military cracks in some way, that they just refuse to continue this incredible bloodbath and slaughter that they're engaged in. I think that's not inconceivable. It's also clear that, that people like Prigozhin have ambitions. I assume Putin's pretty much in control right now, but so was Mikhail Gorbachev, and so was Tsar Nicholas. Uh, things happen. And people think Russia is extremely stable until it isn't. And if ever there was a situation where you have instability, it's the consequence of a disastrous conflict of the kind that Russia is now engaged. Think of the backlash in Russia 
over their failed efforts in Afghanistan, which were far less costly over many more years than this has been for Russia. So I think we haven't begun to see the ripple effect of this disastrous conflict. So we might see a very different Russia at the end of this, but I'm not going to get into that right now because right now the objective is to keep Ukraine from losing and to hold on and hopefully win back as much of its sovereignty as possible. You've been a very forceful proponent of the proposition that the U.S. should be actively engaged in the world. You supported the war in Afghanistan, you supported the war in Iraq. But you could argue, I think, looking back over the last 20 years, that American engagement, for whatever reason, has not proved to be exactly a route to stability and success, whether it's Afghanistan, Iraq, what Obama did in Syria or Libya. That, I think, did create a lot of frustration among a lot of Americans. It's partly the reason Donald Trump came along. Donald Trump came along with the sort of America first approach and saying we should no longer be involved in any of those wars. As you look back on that history of the last 20 years, I know, again, you're still very much a forceful engagement. What have we learned from that? I mean, what have we learned from America's Uh, attempts to reshape the world and, frankly, many failures in attempts to reshape the world. Are we in danger here of repeating those mistakes? Let me just slightly characterize what we're doing differently. I don't think that the United States is on a mission to reshape the world. I think our power has the effect of reshaping the world. But we didn't go into Iraq to reshape the world. We went into Iraq because we were afraid of potential consequences of not going into Iraq. I have to say, as unfortunate as many aspects of the war were, I don't feel that the world would be better off today if Saddam Hussein were still in power. So it was a costly war. It it didn't go exactly the way we wanted it to, certainly, to say the least. But the objective was a worthy objective, and the world is better for it. And a lot of the predictions about what would happen to American leadership as a consequence of Iraq, namely that it would be unable to provide global leadership because the world would turn against the United States, well, that's turned out to be nonsense, obviously. Americans are much more affected by Iraq than the rest of the world is. The rest of the world, those who support democracy and oppose China and Russia, still look to the United States, as we see, for leadership. So I think it's possible to overstate what a disaster all this was. And a lot of that, in my view, is politically motivated. But be that as it may, I've written about the first 150 years or so of American history. There was no period, Jerry, where we're not making all kinds of disastrous mistakes. Certainly the 1920s and 30s come to mind. There were many periods during the Cold War, Vietnam, etc., when the United States has not handled itself well. And I would attribute that to the fact that Americans are normal human beings just like everybody else and make the same kinds of mistakes. I don't know whose foreign policy I would like better. We could have another conversation about that someday. But none of that takes away from the fundamental fact, Jerry, and even over the past 20 and 30 years, which is American power has sustained a world in which, A, democracy is is fundamentally secure and has spread in a way that it never had in history, that the world has been in a general state of prosperity, even notwithstanding the Great Recession, compared to history. And the world has been generally at peace so far in terms of great power conflict. I don't think we should take those things for granted. I think they are part of what makes American leadership special, and we shouldn't take it for granted and then fritter it away. A lot of what went wrong over the last 30 years is a result of Americans trying to turn away from the the role that they play in the world. And I think we've learned that that doesn't work. If I may say that last point, it seems quite controversial. As you do acknowledge, the costs were astonishingly high. The costs were not astonishingly high. It's terrible to lose 4,000 soldiers over 10 years. 
But if you compare that to the conflicts that the United States has been in the past. Talking about the damage done to American prestige, to American credibility, I'm not sure how you can argue that what happened in, as a result of Iraq and to a lesser extent maybe Afghanistan and some of the failures also the Obama administration didn't embolden the rest of the world. I mean, arguably it emboldened Vladimir Putin to do what he did not only in Georgia in 2008 and in Crimea in 2014, the rest of Ukraine in 2022. Again, I'm asking you, can you really look back on that and say this was overall a very successful example of American interventionism and engagement in a direct way with, uh, with the world? No, I would not say it was a very successful engagement. It is somewhere between a very successful engagement and a debacle. But look, look, here's what I would say, Jeremy. If you ask me what I learned, I would say that to me, the most important consequence and the most negative consequence of Iraq was its effect on the American public. Because if you say, look how we retreated or didn't respond correctly to Vladimir Putin in 2008, or in Syria in 2013, or in uh, the case of Crimea in 2014, the answer is, is because of the Iraq war and because of the extreme reluctance that produced on the part of Americans to get involved in other conflicts or even in other crises. It's the same effect that occurred in the United States after World War I, when people were disillusioned and felt that it was a terrible mistake, which led the United States to make a lot more mistakes in refusing to take action when it was necessary in the 20s and 30s. And to some extent, that's what happened after Iraq. But as far as America's prestige is concerned, I think we can overstate how much America's prestige is ever that high. Like in 1968, at the height of Vietnam, the assassination of Martin Luther King, the assassination of Robert Kennedy, the world didn't think the United States was a great place in 1968. Insofar as they looked to the United States, it was because they needed it. And that's the way countries are. If they need something, then they don't care. And basically that right now, as I say, the world, and it's as obvious to everyone, the world is looking to the United States for leadership and has forgotten about Iraq. Only we can't forget about it. So talking about American leadership, this brings me on as neatly to your latest book. And I want you to talk a little bit about this. And again, you know, you've already hinted at this in, in the conversation. This book, I should say, is your second in your trilogy. It covers American foreign policy from 1900 to America's entry into the Second World War, and I should say 1941. That obviously period, perhaps by many things, and you go through it in great detail in the book, but perhaps I think probably for most people, that period between the wars, the period of so-called isolationism, which of course was accompanied by the rise of the Nazis and of Japanese Imperial Japan, and obviously the tragedy of the Second World War, which followed. Do you take away from that principally that it was the failure of the United States after Versailles for the failure of the US to be more engaged that actually was a big contributory factor to the collapse of the world order that happened in the 1920s and 30s. Yes, Jerry, thank you. That's a major theme of the book, really. And one of the areas where I feel like my book maybe does more than some past books is to focus heavily on the 1920s, because I argue in the book that it was in the 1920s that peace was lost. By the time you get to the 1930s, you're already just dealing with the consequences of mistakes in the 1920s. At the end of World War I, the United States was far and away the strongest power in the world, much stronger compared to other powers than it is today, in some respects least as strong as it was right out immediately after World War II. And in some respects, even though the world was torn to pieces by the war, 
from a strategic point of view, it was a fairly benign environment. The Bolsheviks were still in the midst of trying to find their way in the Soviet Union and, and in a state of civil war. Germany was flat on its back. Mussolini was still weak. And the strongest powers were the United States, Britain, and France. And that was the opportunity we had at relatively low cost with relatively low overseas in, uh, engagement to stabilize a peace. And the Versailles Treaty was not meant to operate without the United States. The United States was a critical component of making the Versailles Treaty work so that when the United States backed out of the treaty, not to mention backing out of the League, the major force for peace in Europe was pulled out. And really then it was just a matter of time before the pieces fell apart. And this is not just retroactive judgment on my part. One of the things I was able to discover in my research were numerous American diplomats in Europe, in the State Department, and elsewhere warning that if the United States didn't do a few minimal things, they were really small in that period, that things would fall apart, that Germany would become radicalized, that war was in the offing. They all proved correct. But it isn't as if no one at the time wasn't saying these things. So I think it was a terrible missed opportunity to get a much better world at much lower cost. But it was attributable to the normal, I think, understandable, but nevertheless mistaken American desire to turn away from a troubled world. There's a pretty widespread view among historians that you know, the, the seeds of the tragedy were really absolutely sown in Versailles itself, and in particular, you know, the humiliation of Germany that that involved, the removal of some of Germany's territory, the imposition of reparations, and all of those kind of things. But you're saying actually that, yeah, you're, I think, you know, generally agreeing probably with the mistakes that were made at Versailles, but you're saying that we still had opportunities, perhaps in the 1920s, as you say, by the 1930s, the table was set, really, but in the 1920s, in some way, could we have intervened? I mean, somehow, I don't know, to shore up the Weimar Republic? I know, I hate playing alternative history, and I'm sure you do too, but what were the opportunities that were missed? Sure. I mean, let me just say, uh, as an introduction to this, the great historian of this period, Margaret Macmillan, uh, has said that uh, there is no straight line from 1919 to 1939. Nothing that happened in 1919 made 1939 inevitable. And I agree with that. And that means that there were policy decisions made after 1919 that mattered. One of those, and it's such a small thing, but it really turned out to be critical. At the end of World War I, the United States had a few thousand troops still in Europe in as part of the occupying force in the German Rhineland. And the occupation of the German Rhineland by French, British, and American forces was supposed to be the solution to the European crisis, i.e., how do you let Germany get back on its feet economically, which was vital to the European economy in general, without having Germany turn again into a major military power and a threat to France. At least one of the answers was to keep this occupation force in the Rhineland. But in 1923, the United States pulled all its troops out uh, there, its remaining few thousand troops, despite the fact that not only the British and the French, but the Germans were begging the Americans to stay. But our eagerness to get out of Europe was so profound at that point that we didn't want to play even the most minor role in keeping the peace. The truth is the presence of a very small number of American forces in the Rhineland would have been a, a substantial guarantee against the return of an aggressive Germany and would have an effect as it was having when, when they were in place on the internal politics of Weimar. After those troops were pulled out, you know, Hitler rises, Hitler is granted the chancellorship and then ultimately is elected and takes power. There's a direct correlation between the withdrawal of forces, of all forces from the Rhineland and that action. So 
I do think there were a number of things the United States could have done that would have made a difference. They were small things. They did not require the United States to go to war or threaten to go to war. They were the kind of diplomatic management that we now take for granted as normal behavior. And I think I've studied this period a little bit, having studied the you know, the papers of, of the British government in the night, obviously into the 1930s when appeasement, which has such a bad name, you know, you can see from the deliberations of the British government that one of the principal reasons for appeasement was the belief that, and the conviction, that Britain and France alone in particular were just not capable without US support and engagement of standing up to Germany in a meaningful way, particularly after Germany really started to rearm seriously in 1933. So I think, you know, I'm you know, agreeing with you that that the Neutrality Act, obviously in the United States, the hostility throughout the 1930s of any engagement, that surely did, I think, also play a role in the inability of Britain, in particular Britain and France, to actually do more to resist Nazi Germany. Would you agree with that? Not only would I agree with that, you're 100% right. And I've got a lot of evidence to support that in the book. You know, advisors to Chamberlain are very clear that whatever else was true, the number one factor in his mind was the fact that he couldn't count on the United States. And not count on the United States to come join the war against Germany, but merely to be a reliable supplier of goods during the war, as it was during World War One, and as it would later become after the Lend-Lease and, and other programs of the late 30s and early 40s. But during that period when the Neutrality Acts were in place, the United States would not have been able to help, according to congressional legislation, would not have been able to help if there were a war. And so a tremendous missed opportunity came in 1938, when Hitler really was taking an extreme gamble in trying to take over Czechoslovakia, if France and Britain had supported the Czechs, the Czechs might well have succeeded in fending off the German invasion, and Hitler it might well at that point have been overthrown. His military was gearing up to overthrow him if he invaded and the French and the British defeated Germany. It's interesting to think about that today, because of course today, Ukraine is sort of in the position of Czechoslovakia but lo and behold, this time they are fighting and they are fighting with the support of allies and look what's happening to Russia. Something similar could have happened in 1938 and the world would have looked like a very different place. One final question back to the present day, although it draws on your scholarship in the book. You wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago about uh, essentially, if, if I can sort of paraphrase it, saying essentially that as we think about China and the strategic threat, particularly from China, China should be careful. We should all be careful not to like to underestimate the overall economic and strategic power of the United States. People have dangerously underestimated the power of the United States in the past and shouldn't do it again. That article got a lot of attention. Some other historians, our mutual friends, Neil Ferguson, for example, said it sounded like there was a degree of complacency about it because it seemed as though you were saying China shouldn't dare attack Taiwan or really even seek in some broader sense to challenge United States hegemony because the United States has extraordinary capacity, you know, even at, as you say, at relatively low levels right now of defense spending as a proportion of GDP. Do you feel that confident that the US, you know, continuing economic, military, strategic might is so great that a country like China, again, which again is the great strategic adversary or potential adversary at the moment, really, really will think very, very carefully about challenging it. My point in that essay is that they should. But I also am pretty clear at the end of the essay that I'm not sure that they will, because it is quite astonishing when you think about how many major leaders have made exactly that misjudgment throughout history. Germany twice, Japan once, the Soviet Union, smaller players like Slobodan Milosevic. But in any case, 
There is this assumption that the United States either won't act or can't act or doesn't have the capability, a view which is encouraged by America's own behavior and general lack of readiness. So I'm not optimistic, actually, that the Chinese will not make this what will be for them ultimately a tragic mistake. Nor am I complacent at all. My view actually is we may have been too late gearing up to protect Taiwan. I hope that's not true. And I hope we're trying to make up for our deficiencies as rapidly as possible. My point, and again, it's aimed at Beijing more than at us, is to tell the Chinese that even if they are successful in Taiwan, the overall balance of power is so much against them that they will ultimately fail. Now, I don't want to go through that because the war will be horrendous. The effect on the United States will be horrendous. And it's something that a successful policy will deter it. But I do think it's important for the Chinese to understand that you can listen to a lot of Americans like Neil Ferguson, for instance, and think that the United States is pretty much out of business. That was kind of the argument of one of his recent articles. You know, he's called for detente with China, and he's called for a negotiated settlement with Ukraine, all on the presumption that the United States is incapable of dealing with uh, either of these crises. And I think that, you know, what problem is, is that people in Beijing and elsewhere listen to that and think it's true. And my argument, based on our history as a country, is to say that that's a mistake. We may look like we're not ready, and we may not be, in fact, ready, but it's rather astonishing how quickly the United States has recovered from that condition. And we don't know what a wartime America looks like these days. This is a peacetime America. Everything about the United States has peacetime elements to it, including the size of our defense budget. But a wartime America is a different animal, including in terms of public attitudes. Insofar as it's possible to deter the Chinese I think it's important that they know that this is ultimately a loser for them. Last question, Bob, which follows from that. While I don't disagree, and I think many people will say, yes, things may not look great at the moment, but America has exactly, as you've just said, as demonstrated, whether in 1940-41 or even in 1917, an ability to gear itself up, to leverage its extraordinary economic power to achieve its military and strategic objectives. I do think one question that a lot of people have, and again, you can give us a historical perspective on this, does this country have the kind of cohesion now and the unified will now to rouse itself to deal with such a threat should that come again. Um, again, maybe from a historical perspective, you'll say, you know, we've been here before, but it does feel like a very divided country, of a country full of internal mutual suspicion and enmity. And do you feel confident that the United States in its current condition is actually able to meet that challenge should it come? bad as things are now, I don't know that they're much worse than they were in 1940. The battle that was going on over whether to intervene in Europe or not was pretty dramatic and pretty brutal. Uh, the country was deeply divided. Uh, and yet, of course, as soon as Pearl Harbor occurred, didn't mean people stopped dissenting, but they dissented much more quietly after that. And, and there was a great deal of unity. I think we're a conflict to begin with China. The Chinese should expect tremendous unity on the part of the United States. If there's one policy, in fact, where you could imagine bipartisan response, I would think it is China, after all. Just look at the way the country responded to the balloon affair. If I were the Chinese, I would have said, I don't know what intelligence they were going to be gathering from their technical equipment, but the balloon itself revealed a lot about America's mood right now. 
And so I don't think, you know, any more than usual, the country's, you know, we're a democracy, right, Jerry? So we're going to have disagreements. But on balance, I would say, and I'm not rooting for this because I don't want a war with China. I hope we can deter it. But what should the Chinese make that mistake? I think they would find a pretty unified American public, don't you? Probably. I just don't know. I mean, you point about the balloon. You're right. I mean, it did clearly rouse a lot of suspicions and concerns in America. But of course, it was typically, I mean, again, maybe this is just a healthy democracy work. A lot of it was, of course, directed against the supposed apparent failures of the Biden administration to deal with it. I worry very much, frankly, that, if, you know, take another 9-11. I mean, 9-11 was an extraordinary thing. We remember it both vividly, the extraordinary unity that the country went through, which lasted for quite a while afterwards. We can, it did sort of start falling apart, particularly over Iraq, but you know, there was an extraordinary sense of unity. I do wonder today if something like that similarly happened, whether we wouldn't immediately fall amongst ourselves and start blaming each other because that's the way the country works. But again, maybe that's just a short-term, ahistorical, overly pessimistic view. I, I could be wrong. I hope I am. No, no, no. Look, I and look, I and I don't know that you're wrong either. I just think that it's possible to overstate how much unity there has been in the past, and, and you know that well, Jerry. Even at the height of the Cold War, right? I mean, we were often very divided. So, you know, th- that is just, I think, just the nature of the beast. But I think when the United States is actually at war. Again, I'm hopeful that that's not going to be the case. But when the United States is actually at war, at least for the duration of the war, there's usually a fair amount of unity. I could talk about this all day. Bob Kagan, scholar and author and historian of U.S. foreign policy, author of a new book, uh, Ghost of the Feast, which looks at the U.S. foreign policy in the first half of the 20th century. Bob Kagan, thanks very much for joining Free Expression. Thank you, Jerry. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Free Expression. I'll be back next week with another in-depth examination of a big topic that's shaping the world. In the meantime, thanks very much for joining us, and goodbye. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com slash WSJ.